0: it's wednesday august 13th 2014 from slate it's the gist i'm mike pesca so here's about another week of summer camp bunks bug juice tug of war the pool the lake maybe the lake maybe the lake will be good for you water skiing campfires and studying the effects of rent and property values when there's an influx of wealthier people to an existing urban district
1: if you're a student at steam summer camp in brooklyn it's time to learn about gentrification. The campers are studying their community and the housing issues they see and live with.
0: Yeah, that was Marketplace, public radio show Marketplace, detailing the biggest bummer of a summer camp, gentrification summer camp, where they play culturally appropriate the flag, where the ghost stories are all about the once bountiful stocks of affordable middle-class housing. And color war, well, actually, it's still color war. I once did a story on media literacy camp. So camps like dorky, nerdy summer camps are a news editor's dream. Yeah, go to camp because that's contrast, right? Summer camp's supposed to be fun, but this is very nerdy. And so I can report that, oh, those poor kids in media literacy camp, they did get a little indoctrination, but it won't hold. They were told how photos can be manipulated, but I guess they weren't given context about how often this happens. So I asked the campers ranging in age from 9 to 14, how often does the New York Times just fake a photo on its front page? All the time, most of them said. Maybe almost all the time, one of them said. So that's okay. Listen, kids, just play kickball. Campers, throw the kids a kickball. Head counselor Piketty needs to put down the genie coefficient and roast a frickin' marshmallow. On the show today, we check in with Prudence for a post-Prudence impact statement. In the spiel, I'll talk about Tony Stewart and the death on a racetrack. But first, Republicans are trying to court black voters. Do their proposals have a chance? In the last two presidential elections, the Republican candidates pulled 4% and then 6% of the black vote. That was the lowest since Goldwater in 64. Writing in Slate, Jamel Bowie says the last time Republicans were this unpopular with black Americans, their nominee had sided with white supremacists. So maybe 2016 will be different. One presumed candidate, Rand Paul, is at least supporting issues important to black people, like enfranchising felons. And he's doing it in forums important to black people, like the Urban League, and he's doing it in a way that might appeal to black people, like by quoting Malcolm X. Another presumed candidate, Chris Christie, is not just talking. Yesterday, in a move largely unnoted by national media, he signed into law the ban the box law, which requires companies to wait until they've interviewed job applicants before asking if he or she has been convicted of a crime. And part of this law was also to ease the prospect of getting bail for low-level offenses. Tangible stuff. Polls show issues of criminal justice are important to black voters. Raihan Salam is author of the National Review Online's The Agenda. He's a columnist for Slate. He's also the author of Grand New Party, How Republicans Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. Thanks for coming on, Raihan.
2: I am honored to be here, sir.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's talk about Rand Paul first. Do you support his policy proposals, and do you think they have a chance of becoming law?
2: I am not a Rand Paul libertarian on most issues, but on criminal justice reform, I think that he's on the right page. And I think that there are some of these proposals that are going to make progress. For example, he's worked with Cory Booker on a couple of these sentencing reform issues. The Obama administration has embraced the idea of sentencing reform on the federal side. One issue is that the federal government only has so much leverage. Uh, With regard to criminal justice, a lot of that happens at the state and local level. But he is changing the conversation in a smart way. And I think it is going to have a real impact.
0: Now, Chris Christie obviously can do things on the state level. He is doing things. And my question uh, as regards him is... Do you think he's out of step with Republicans? Because I personally, on some of these issues, narrowly like sentencing reform, whereas 10, 15 years ago, I just don't think Republicans would be in favor of it. Now I think they're maybe willing to go along, so therefore maybe this idea has uh, some legs uh, beyond New Jersey.
2: Yeah, I think it definitely does. So the key thing to keep in mind is that republicans uh... particularly republicans in a place like new jersey if you think about Rudy Giuliani's political career in new york city they really connected with this idea that hey there's a violent crime explosion we've got to get tough uh... but i think that now that we've had you know over twenty years during which uh, violent crime rates have declined. A lot of these mandatory minimum laws, a lot of this very tough sentencing, this came from that era when crime seemed to be out of control and people were desperate to get it under control. And now, you know, we've entered a different era in which conservatives, like a lot of liberals, feel a lot safer rethinking this stuff.
0: In past election cycles, you would hear Republicans saying, well, we can reach out to black voters. For instance, we're very religious, so we share that. And our opposition to gay marriage, I think, will resonate with uh, some black voters. And I just thought that that was a loser as an issue. And I also thought it was Republicans not at all challenging themselves to actually change their policies, but just trying to, you know, emphasize and pitch to some imagined black voter a policy that they already had. Is it different this time around?
2: You will notice that among many conservatives, including Tea Party conservatives, they oftentimes are very enthusiastic about having African-Americans who embrace their message and who are really hard-right conservatives. The problem is that a lot of those guys, they don't resonate with other black voters. That's not necessarily the right way to do this kind of outreach. On the other hand, I do think that when you look at the black vote since, let's say, the late 60s, since the early 70s, it's fluctuated. And the Obama years have been a period during which Republicans have done particularly poorly with black voters, uh, because, you know, prior to that, you'd have, you know, about, you know, between 8 and 12%, let's say, of the black vote would be a Republican. Now, the thing is that if Mitt Romney Did that well with black voters, as Slate's Jamel Bowie has observed, Uh, actually, that would have made a really big difference in Ohio, Virginia, Florida. George W. Bush arguably won re-election in 2004 because of African-American voters, uh, many of whom were socially conservative, in Ohio. So actually, even making that marginal difference can be good news. But to make that marginal difference, to get that extra four, five, six percentage points, I don't think the strategy is say exactly what we've always been saying and hope the black voters buy it this time. I think the smarter way is, you know, move to the center, do things that you're going to do to win middle-class voters of all racial backgrounds. And I think that that's going to appeal to a decent chunk of black voters.
0: Right. So black voters' number one issue is everyone's number one issue, jobs in the economy. And if somehow the Republicans can prove they're better on the issue, they're going to appeal off a lot of black voters. But there are other issues that blacks have concerns about that I don't see the Republican Party either changing their position on, or even being able to sell their position. So I'm thinking of affirmative action, not a huge um, issue, even to black voters, but support for affirmative action when it's put that way. Affirmative action is 51% among whites and 76% among blacks. And then you have Obamacare, which is much, much more popular with black voters than uh, anyone else. And so my question there is without a policy change, how appealing can Republicans be?
2: Uh, you, you make a great point. So that's why I emphasize that, the, you know, I think it's pretty unlikely that Republicans are going to win, let's say, 50 percent of the black vote anytime soon. One of the bedrock things in American politics is that when you're looking at household income, that has a lot to do with who supports which party. You know, African-American households tend to earn less. So they're generally going to, you know, be more inclined to favor the Democrats who favor more transfers, more redistribution to people with lower incomes. That's going to be there. The question is, can Republicans do more to peel off some, let's say, middle class, upper middle class black voters who, let's say, are part of that chunk of the African-American electorate that, yeah, is somewhat more socially conservative, that is, uh, let's say, a bit more skeptical about affirmative action. There is that chunk of voters. And the really big problem for Republicans is that they're not even appealing right now to enough of those voters.
0: Raihan Salam is the author of the National Review Online's The Agenda, Slate columnist, also co-author of Grand New Party, how Republicans can win the working class and save the American dream. Thank you, Raihan. Thank you very much for having me. People write in to Emily Yaffe, who writes the Dear Prudence column in Slate with matters of love, matters of ethics, matters of morality, all sorts of matters. She wades through them, tries to give advice. And then what we do, days, years, months, millennia later, is we call some of the people. We see how Emily's advice landed. We see if it changed the course of their lives. Well, Emily Yaffe joins me now. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. Hey, what Dear Prudence column and letter are we going to talk about today?
1: We're talking about a letter from someone named Copy That who worked at a copy shop. And his eyes couldn't help but fall on the documents. Mm -hmm. And they were between uh, a guy who was a private tutor of young teenagers and a friend of the tutor. Many of the exchanges were about fantasies about these Lolita-type young women in need of, I guess, math help, Mm -hmm. and uh, what this tutor would like to do with them. And in one of the exchanges, the tutor talked about how he had uh, called the house to try to talk to one of the girls, and the mother seemed very suspicious. And so copy that was writing to say, should I do something about this? Should I report this? Is it none of my business? what's up
0: and just to finally underline the nature of uh, the tutor's exchange with a friend and i don't understand why he was having it copied, but i don't know if that's important <laughs> they talked about like taking the virginity of this 15 year old girl i mean it got pretty graphic right
1: yes yeah. yes
0: that pushes it to another category beyond merely creepy to almost
1: actionable i know what my
0: advice would have been what was your advice
1: I actually talked to a lawyer about this. Mm -hmm. And although uh, they were exchanging recommendations about pornographic websites, this was not specifically child pornography. But there are some states in which if someone in the course of this kind of IT work finds child pornography, they're required by law to report this. And I thought this was in a similar category. The copy shop person hung on to these. I said, copy the file. Uh, You can call the police, ask where to report. You could forward it to a prosecutor's office anonymously if you want to stay out of it. Mm -hmm. But I think the authorities need to know about someone like this, who clearly is grooming uh, vulnerable young women. What do you think he did with your advice before we call him? Well, we've had a kind of 50-50, haven't we, people taking my advice or not? I the, my advice was so specific, and because this copy that could have done it anonymously, I really hope he did follow through. I would
0: think he'd do something. Let's hope. let's call. let's, let's say let's
1: hope.
3: Hello,
0: hello. This is Mike Pasca of the Gist. I'm here with Emily Yaffe. Do you copy that? Copy that?
3: I do. How are you guys?
0: Good thanks. How are you?
1: Very good. thank you for uh, for giving me a ring.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks for writing in to Emily. It was a serious problem. And um, Emily, you take it from here.
1: Mike and I agree. It seemed like you were looking for someone to tell you to take action, call the authorities on this creep. What did you do?
3: So, yes, you're exactly right that I wanted confirmation because I was really wavering and my girlfriend thought I should do it. Um, and I wasn't so sure. And so, you know, go to Emily was my first instinct. And your advice, I thought, was very good. Do something about it. And I ended up doing exactly nothing.
0: Oh, no! What? Uh,
3: yes. I mean, okay, so I feel like it's more complicated than that. It's <laughs> So I read your response, and I thought your response was great, and it made sense. And so my first instinct, and this is a warning, uh, was to go read some of the comments to the article. And so I had your really good advice, and then I had people sort of already confirming my sort of fear that I already had. And in the end, I ended up deciding not to do anything. To this day, like, I still regret it a little bit. I'm not sure if it was the right thing to do. I honestly don't know. I mean, oh I, I don't know. See, the thing was, and, you know, this this came across in the letter, that there was no explicit, concrete actionable information right like there was no you know oh geez i have to jump on this it was lots of insinuation i mean he did have that sort of behavior where he had called uh, one of his students homes to talk to her or at least he said so in the email
1: that's so, called grooming you know, copy know. that that's really bad
3: i think your advice was good And I have no honest defense, like, why I didn't follow it.
0: But why did you think that if you had turned it over to a prosecutor, the police, someone in a position of authority, they wouldn't have known how to deal with it? They probably deal with things like that all the time. And maybe they could determine that there's really nothing there.
3: My sort of instinct is to be really suspicious of involving police in, in general. I mean, I just hear so many horror stories of people getting railroaded over nosy neighbors and, and the like. And so, and especially with this, where, like, this could really completely ruin someone's life. And the person he was writing to was, I don't know if this got in the letter or not, but the person he was writing to was sort of a minor celebrity of sorts. Like, I won't say any names, but he was somebody that people would have heard of. And so I didn't, you know, I felt really conflicted. Like, I don't want to inflict career damage. you know, I I didn't know. So I was just really wary of that because it can be such a, a scarlet letter.
0: This is f- interesting because on the political gap fest, they've been having this discussion about going to the authorities. And Emily Bazelon said, especially when issues of race are involved, I don't know if they are here, you know, don't do it. And I think John Dickerson and Plotz kind of argued back and forth. But here I have no qualms about, giving it to someone with a lot more experience. Because the worst thing that can happen if he's totally innocent of anything, that they ask him an uncomfortable question or the guy loses one gig, right? But the worst thing that right. can happen if he's really doing something is unspeakable. And when you weigh that against each other, I think you have to take action.
3: I agree with that. I, too, have been following the debate. And, you know, I, was, I considered myself sort of Team Emily on that subject.
1: But you have more than enough evidence hear that this tutor of young girls is in the business for nefarious reasons. And, you know, the vast majority of tips never turn into anything. It's just not prosecutable. But the authorities might have already been alerted about this guy. But if they haven't been, they should be. And I think you need to do it.
0: Listen, we don't do this. We usually do a post-prudence <laughs> impact statement, but I think we're going to have to do a post-post-prudence impact statement. We want to call you in about a month and see that you did something.
3: Okay. okay. I may not have any information in terms of what actually transpired, but I can at least tell you what action I took. That would be great.
0: Right. And okay. this will show that you did take action, and we urge you to do so.
3: <laughs> Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.
0: Okay. So, um, Emily, that did not go how we wanted it. Wow. That did not go how we expected, but... I think he really is going to follow up, although I thought he was going to follow up the first time. What do you think?
1: I hope so. And it was so interesting that he waded into the comments because often in the comments, the comments can be really helpful and illuminating. They can also create kind of a flash mob, Mm -hmm. and there becomes a mob mentality, and I think he got caught up in that, well, you're just uh, reading things into things that aren't there. As you pointed out, Mike, he and this celebrity talking about uh, graphically how to take the virginity of 15-year-old students, this guy is called the house of a girl he's tutoring not to talk about algorithms, it's just too much.
0: Emily Offey writes the Dear Prudence column. Thank you so much, Emily.
1: My pleasure. Nice to talk to you.
0: And now the spiel. So, you know, I cover sports. I still cover sports on NPR and hang up and listen. Sometimes cable stations ask me to come on and talk sports with them. I will recuse myself when... The sports they're talking about are out of my depth or something I don't know about. So on Monday, CNN asked me to come on to talk about the terrible death, the death of Kevin Ward Jr., a young driver who was struck by NASCAR great Tony Stewart that happened on a dirt track in upstate New York on Sunday night. But on Monday morning, I didn't really know enough about that, so I demurred. But then I read up on the incident, I talked to an expert, and by Tuesday I thought I could offer some measure of insight on MSNBC. And so I went on MSNBC, I talked to Chris Hayes last night, I wanted to make a couple of points, which... I think I did. First of all, I wanted to point out that Tony Stewart is a hothead. That's true. And he's a guy who gets into fist fights with his fellow race car driver. But that doesn't mean he intentionally tried to use his car as a weapon. I made an analogy to other sports. In baseball, players get in fights. Pitchers throw the ball at batters intentionally. But you don't hit anyone with a bat. It happened once in a major league game that I know of, and that was among the most notorious incidents in the sports history. It's the same with hockey. They're getting in fights all the time, but I've never seen a player intentionally slash another with his skates. So the sport-to-sport comparison might help clarify some things in the minds of viewers, like you don't use your race car as a weapon. And I also wanted to make the point that some sports fans are putting this deadly incident in the same category as like every other sports controversy. So, punt or go for it on fourth down. So, bunt or swing away. So, Tony Stewart murderer or non-murderer? Here's what I said on MSNBC. I just wanna say, I think we do a great harm to Tony Stewart when we do this because there is no evidence of yep. any intention. So some things to know about that race car, they have giant wings, it, the sight is extremely limited. It's a, it's not like a NASCAR, it's not a hugely lit NASCAR track, it's a dirt track, he's wearing dark clothes. Have I have talked to people who've driven these cars, you can, there are huge blind spots, the blind spots are somewhere near the right rear t- tire. They're also not even designed to turn right, they're designed to turn left. There are so many factors that would indicate that Tony Stewart Stewart did not see them. And the biggest factor is, since we can't at all prove that Tony Stewart in any way had any intentionality, I think that it is a calumny against him to say that, you know, Tony Stewart is something of a murderer. And my point wasn't that I could be certain that Tony Stewart didn't hit the young driver intentionally. I don't know. And you don't know. Given not just the legal principle of presumption of innocence, but the epistemological principle of don't say something if you don't actually know it to be so, based on that, we should not be calling Tony Stewart a murderer. And for this sentiment, for saying that, I was inundated with comments on Twitter saying, hey, you're defending a murderer. All right, that happens. Some of these people who tweeted me, the ones who didn't strongly imply that I should be the next one to be run over, say, I tweeted back and pointed out that in New York State, 95% of vehicular homicides do not result in prosecution. And when you take driving while impaired off the table, and there's just no indication that that was in play, it's even rarer still. And furthermore, you have the victim. He walked out of his car onto this track with fast-moving race cars on it. Civil law would certainly deem this contributory negligence. So what I'm trying to do is to sidestep the game of Tony Stewart did it on purpose slash Tony Stewart didn't do it on purpose. My sole aim is to pull the plug on that particular game because it's not a game, even if it is being hotly debated on 750 the game or 95-3 the score or 560 the team. I don't actually think that it's a proper discussion to be having, did Tony Stewart murder a guy? I don't really think it has anything to do with sports. Except I was reminded that it has to do with sports. Tweet from Jiu-Jitsu Jeff. How is he a murderer? Did he purposefully run ward over? I don't think so. People are nuts. Reply from me. It's upsetting, plus people don't know the law. Reply from Jiu-Jitsu Jeff. Murder isn't even close. Just blind hate for Stewart is all it is. And you know what? Jiu-Jitsu Jeff is right. Because I don't really follow NASCAR and because the teams aren't Teams that don't read to me as teams, they're individuals. I had forgotten how tribal the sport is. Tony Stewart fans love him, and his detractors really, really hate him, and that colors your perception. Studies have shown that it's nearly impossible for a partisan of a team to judge a game dispassionately. In fact, the study of this effect, conducted with Princeton and Dartmouth students in 1954, was called They Saw a Game, a Case Study. And that's what's happening with the Tony Stewart case. most of the most impassioned observers are still seeing a game. Of course, a lot of people on Twitter congratulated me on my fair take. In fact, I thought it was so fair as to be uncontroversial. That, by the way, is noted in bias too. And I'll also acknowledge that some people who reached out to say they saw wisdom in my argument might also have been watching a game. Tweet from Clarity Bell. Thank you, Mike, for trying to add some sanity to this conversation. Oh wait, you can't see Clarity Bell's avatar. It's a headshot of Tony Stewart. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is a proud graduate of PodCamp, where she and a ragtag bunch of other campers pulled pranks, like tagging all back episodes of the President's Sunday radio address with the explicit label. Andy Bauer, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was a counselor at that camp, there, he convinced his young campers to sneak Colt Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast into Grammar Girl's feed. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Please give us a review in iTunes. We're on Facebook. Our Twitter feed is SlateGist. Yo, we're on Yo. We're podcast. We're just called podcast. Sign up for Yo. We'll Yo You. Yo, Yo us back. You know how it goes. To so sign up for the daily newsletter that will hit your inbox the moment the show is live. That you can also play the show from this email. Go to slate.com slash gist email email us at the at slate.com i never did get to go to pod camp my parents thought they'd save money by enrolling me in a three-week intensive vlogging course at the local community college i don't remember much except to end things by saying thanks for listening